Hello, this is Dr. David Banner again, uh, coming to you via podcast on the book Frame Shifting, A Path to Wholeness. Uh, for those of you that went through the Enneagram chapters, welcome back to the book. Uh, I included those chapters for those that want to review, uh, or if you've never heard of the Enneagram, for you to get up to speed on the technicalities of the system. Anyway, this chapter is called A Question of Identity, a very important chapter, and uh, I'm going to explain to you how the ego is formed uh, and why it's such a problem. Uh, psychologists call the ego the self-concept, and what that means is it's a set of beliefs, attitudes, and values that all relate to you as a separate entity. Uh, there are things you like and don't like. There are things that you uh, think are your weaknesses, things you think are your strengths. Uh, what do you think is good? What do you think is bad? All of these things are part of your self-concept or your ego identity. So what I want to do is explain this a little bit in more detail and then talk about a different kind of identity that you could adopt. Uh, the question of who you are has been around forever, for millennia. And uh, Enneagram people uh, define who you are in three basic categories. Uh, I am my body. These are so-called body types, eight, nine, and one. Uh, I am my emotions. These, these are the uh, feeling types, two, three, and four. And then there are the uh, mental types, five, six, and seven. The idea is the identity comes from one of those three triads. So if you're a body type, you're identity comes from uh, your body, your instincts. Uh, if you are a feeling type, your identity comes from your image. Uh, and if you are a thinking type, your identity comes from your mind. Because oh, these are all ego identities, by the way. Uh, so, given all of that, If you are body type, you're worried about gaining too much weight uh, or not having enough weight. If you're a mental type, you're worried about the past, what happened in the past, regret for the past, or you're worried about the future, what's going to happen in the future. And if you're an image type or a feeling type, you're concerned about uh, will people like me? Am I doing the right things? Am I... Uh, performing up to others' expectations. So all of these are simply ego identities. And if you, if you listen to chapters 2 and 3, you'll know how these were formed. And basically, they're survival mechanisms. Uh, as we're young, growing up, we're pretty helpless. And we start to identify with our significant others, usually the parents, and we start looking for ways to please them and to avoid punishment. And this has been true for millennia, as you might imagine. 
And so we learn very quickly what gets approval and what gets disapproval. And this shapes our identity. This is called the socialization process. So the thing that makes it even more interesting is as these identities are formed, usually they're solidified by age 12, but sometimes you can see a, a type much earlier than that. Uh, but that by age 12, usually the type is solidified. What happens is the type comes in with your DNA, according to the latest research. And then you have experiences which cause you to react according to the structure of that type. And it just gets stronger and stronger until you are that type. Uh, you're not actually that type. You're a spiritual being in a body but you don't know that necessarily, and you think that you are that type. Okay, so this, uh, all three of these options, I am my mind, I am my feelings, I am my body, are simply ego identities and have been around forever. Well, the scientific method, let me change course here for you a little bit, the scientific method's been around for quite a while, and the idea behind the scientific method is that you uh, make a hypothesis and you try to prove certain things are true. Uh, you have a control group and an experimental group, and the only difference between the two is the experimental group has some variable, let's call it Y, that's different from the control group. And then you watch the two groups operate, and if they are different, then it's assumed that the difference is because of the variable y, whatever it is. Okay, so these identities, these ego identities, can all be proven, so-called, using the experimental or scientific method. Uh, and I can help you with that if any of you need help in identifying your type. Uh, by the way, the, the most important thing about your type is that's where your identity rests. We visit all the types. Uh, once you've uh, gone through the, the nine different types, you probably can say, well, I felt like that, I felt like that, I felt like that, and all that's true. But the, the significant thing is one of those types is where you live. And this is the one you want to concentrate on, the one where you live. <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, let's uh, continue on. Uh, I should also point out that you do have an identity in the ego, and there are also sub-identities that you have. Um, for example, uh, some people think they are their job. Some people think they are their personality. Some people think they are their possessions, and so forth. These are not you. <laughs> you know, to say, I am my car, it sounds kind of silly, but some people act as though they were their car, and their car makes them either look good or look bad. <laughs> it's kind of silly when you look at it that way, but that's what a lot of people do. People who want to be seen as unique, say you're a type four and you want to be seen as unique, 
then you will wear clothing like linens and cottons. Avoid polyesters at all costs so that you can show your audience that you are unique. And this goes on and on. Uh, if you're a type 5, then you can demonstrate your intelligence. This shows people how smart you are. Uh, if you're a type 1, the perfectionist, then you can be really careful to make sure everything is done correctly, and so forth and so on. So all of these uh, identities come from the Enneagram. Now, let's go back to your childhood. All of us have experienced trauma. Uh, that's just the nature of growing up. So what happens is once you've experienced trauma, you adopt your ego identity or your type as a strategy to survive in a seemingly hostile world. <clears throat> this is the nature of the ego identity. It's separate from the larger whole, and it thinks that the world is hostile. So you have to duck and dive and, and uh, develop strategies so you can survive. And it looks that way as a separate person. Uh, definitely looks that way. Uh, we talk about everything is one, and in fact it is, but we don't see it that way because we have these separate bodies. I want, I want to read you something that comes from the avatar training, which highlights the problem of the separate identity. When you adopt the viewpoint that there is nothing that exists that's not part of you, that there's no one who exists that's not part of you, that any judgment you make is self-judgment, that any criticism you make is self-criticism, you will wisely extend to yourself an unconditional love that will be the light of the world. This is true. This is the truth. However, it doesn't look that way from the separate ego identity viewpoint or lens, uh, it doesn't look that way because we all appear to have separate bodies. Uh, but this is just an illusion. As I mentioned in the last chapter, the illusion of separateness is what it is. So, here's the problem. When we have a separate identity, a separate ego identity, a separate Enneagram identity or type, we separate ourselves from the rhythms that rule the cosmos. I mean, there is obviously, unless you're an atheist, a, a pulsation that is directing everything everywhere. It directs the seasons, it directs night from uh, morning, uh, old age and young age, you name it. There, there's obviously something, we could call it God, we can call it spirit, doesn't matter what you call it. There's something that's operating the cosmos, okay? <clears throat> and if you're in an ego identity, <laughs> you are separated from that which is ruling the cosmos. So this is a very, very scary place to be, which is why all ego identities are based on fear. Now, as I pointed out in the last two chapters, there's some that are very focused on fear. These are the mental types, five, six, and seven, but all the types are afraid because they're all separated from 
the pulsations or rhythms of the cosmos. I mean, for example, when you plant an acorn, you always get an oak tree. You never get a mimosa. <laughs> and that's kind of a silly example, but that shows you what I'm talking about, that there is a design to the pulsations of life. There is a design to the rhythm of life. And if you're not in touch with that, then your life becomes a very scary place to be. Okay. So the ego is a response to this fear that we feel when we're born and we seem separate and the world seems hostile. I'm not saying any of this is true, but this is what it seems like. So we develop these strategies, all nine of them, which are designed to protect us. Now, they do a pretty good job of this, actually. Uh, in the early years of our lives, uh, we can argue that these types really do protect us. Uh, however, later on in life, they become a hindrance. For example, uh, the type one, the perfectionist. These are people that see error everywhere. They walk into a room and they see the wall that wasn't painted right, the spot on the rug, etc. They're always looking to correct things to make sure things are correct. Well, the problem comes in when the attention goes to, from, I want this to be correct, to, I have to have this be correct. Therein lies the problem. This is called a fixation. And all nine types develop fixations where they feel like their particular focus of attention has to uh, occur or they're going to feel unsafe. And this is true, as I say, with all nine types. I picked the perfectionist because it's easy to point out, but any of the types, this is true. Number two, the caring, helpful person. Uh, I want to be helpful becomes I have to be helpful. Uh, type three, the achiever. Uh, goes from, I want to be successful to, I have to be successful. You get the picture. Okay. This is the process of socialization. This is what we all have went, gone through to become ego-identified. Once you are conditioned with this particular societal socialization process, then you start to identify things that are good and things that are bad, things that you like, things that you don't like. And this is what's called duality. And uh, in my other book, Loving It All, I have a whole chapter on the curse of duality. And duality simply means that your mind judges things to be bad and good. Uh, and actually nothing is bad or good. Things are just what they are. That's the truth of the matter. <laughs> there is no bad or good other than your mind's definition of something being bad or good. Okay, now this is something that's going to surprise you, but I think it's important to say it. The fundamental desire of the ego is to replace God, period. That's what it's trying to do. It's deciding that I'm going to run things. I don't need God to tell me what to do or any divine being. Uh, I'm going to run things, okay? <laughs> and that, that's where it gets into trouble because it is a separate 
It's alone and it's not attached to the rhythms of the universe that I just talked about. So it doesn't really know what to do. So it thrashes around and does this and does that based on its likes and dislikes. And chaos <laughs> comes from that. And you see that in the world right now. Um, <laughs> it should be obvious that, uh, for example, say you have a grievance towards someone. Well, <laughs> You're acting as, uh, as if God's plan for that person was incorrect and you're the one that has the correct plan. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of silly when you think about it, but the ego wants to be as God and there is the problem in a nutshell. The ego needs a certain level of stress or trauma to survive. Uh, the ego can't stand peace and balance because this comes with ado adopting a larger identity, uh, which is the identity of the whole. If you begin to see yourself literally as part of a larger whole, despite the illusion of separateness, you begin to adopt an identity that is, of course, uh, much more closely aligned with uh, the rhythms of the cosmos. A lot of people uh, don't understand this definition of ego as being a separate identity uh, because they look through their eyes and think that the world out there is different from them. But what they don't realize is their eyes are merely a projector of their belief systems, attitudes, and values. You get out in the so-called objective world a picture of your internal beliefs, attitudes, and values. That's all it is. It's an outpicturing of your own learned responses. Uh, so in the darkness of the ego, you cannot see, hear, smell, taste, or touch anything of reality. Everything you experience is a projection of the ego's insanity. Okay. We can continue on with this. Uh, the true identity is not any Enneagram type. It transcends the types. And that's why you need to watch yourself do your type. Because once you bust yourself and begin to see that the type is merely an ego identity, you can begin to observe yourself, and this observer is part of the larger identity. If you start watching yourself, you will begin to see that the true self is the thing that watches. Okay. Here's another metaphor. Do you want to choose an identity as a wave or the ocean? As a wave, you're tiny and insignificant. As the ocean, you are mighty and strong. There's another huge difference between the two identities. In the fear-based ego state, you don't experience reality. You hear, see, taste, and touch a projection of your internal software. The waking dream is like a movie with you as the projectionist, except you don't realize it. In true identity, you basically let the spirit shine through your eyes for radiant seeing, through your ears for radiant hearing, and so forth. 
You let the mind of God do your thinking, and you have radiant thinking. In this way, you perceive the actual true reality and not a projection of your ego. Okay, uh, there's many more we can say about this. Uh, I used to know an African elder named Maladomo Somme, and they had wonderful tradition in Africa. When they have a young person that's born, uh, they tell the young person that person's purpose in life. They, they articulate a purpose for this person. So when a young person commits an offense, instead of punishing the person, they simply remind the person of their life purpose to get them back on track. Their life purpose was articulated at birth, and every year thereafter, this helps keep them in the divine design for their lives. What a wonderful way to bring the person back into alignment with their true purpose. Okay. Uh, there are several levels of consciousness available uh, in true identity. Uh, one level is called uh, perpetual consciousness. Another level is called unity conscious. Another level is called unified perpetual consciousness. So, all of these people that are in perpetual consciousness or true identity have a, have a, uh, a balance to themselves. Uh, they don't react to things as quickly. Uh, guilt and fear come from the old reality. Why would you feel fearful and guilty? Well, if you're a separate identity disconnected from your true identity, of course you're going to feel guilty and fearful. So this just goes on and on and on. Uh, uh, being 100% responsible is, is the key. Uh, we are all one and all interconnected at the deepest levels of consciousness. That's the truth, despite how it looks. So if you begin to operate from this uh, idea of 100% personal responsibility for my life since I'm the one that created it, you will begin to have experiences based on connecting with the larger design. Uh, and if you get out of the fear-based ego and start busting yourself for your Enneagram unconscious behavior, uh, you will begin to have an experience of a much larger reality. So that's where I want to stop in this chapter.